Can you imagine if you were living in a political landscape where the party or party was unifying to erase your national history, denying the binding national narrative that made and united you and were making up a whole new national heritage and national narrative that had no basis in actual history or basis in reality? Can you imagine if they ignored or refused to prosecute the laws that provided safety and civil order in your land? Can you imagine if they denied the applicability of those laws that established and directed the moral structure of the nation? This is, in our text that we're looking at, what the Jews are actually accusing Paul of teaching. They're not saying that he's changing the political narrative. They're saying that he's changing the spiritual narrative. That actually was the job that God had given to the people of Israel. That they would bear forth through their own history a lesson for the world. That they would establish a law that somehow would constrain, you might say, the civil disorder in the world and not only in their own nation. And that they would set forward the moral cadence that would guide and direct the world in the way that they should live. They're saying that actually the Christian is nullifying all of that job and all that responsibility that God gave to the people of Israel. And Paul is answering this accusation that is made that they are in a sense attacking and nullifying the very heart and soul of Judaism and the mission that the Jew had been given to the world. And Paul says, not at all. In fact, we are not nullifying it. We are establishing it. We are upholding it. We are not denying our heritage. We're not denying the constraint of conscience that law puts upon people. We're not denying the moral structure that the law brings to people. We're fulfilling it. And so in Romans 3.31, he simply says, Do we make void the law through faith? It's as if the question is being asked of him. And he says, Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, as you have your Bibles open and you're looking at this, you'll see that it's a very simple verse, and it's actually not extrapolated. It's not explained. It's not given a fuller understanding of exactly what he means. We don't know exactly what he means by the law. We don't know exactly what he means by establishing the law. We don't know if what he's saying is he's referring to the law as a testimony in the community, or he's referring to the law as a convicting work, or he's referring to law as a commanding directive. The suggestion is that if you buy into Paul's arguments, though, that a person is saved by faith alone, you will abandon your community heritage, you will subvert the constraint of the conscience, you will untether yourselves from all moral restraint, and you'll be lawless, and you'll introduce people into chaos. The question is, is that true? Is that what the teaching and instruction of Christianity will bring to individuals. And as we've said, Paul says that's all nonsense. The Christian teaching of salvation by faith alone does not nullify the law. It does not destroy its purpose. Instead, its faith and this faith, the Christian faith that he's teaching and instructing and has been teaching and instructing, upholds that law. It lifts it up. It establishes it. It fixes it in place. To understand this passage, one of our commentators, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Moo, has pointed out that the law here can be understood in three different ways. I basically already referred to it. It can refer to the law as a testifying force, or it can refer to the law as a convicting force, as the thing that stirs up our consciences, or it can refer to the law as a commanding force that gives us all of the laws and the commands. It could be just referring to the Ten Commandments and the various moral laws that are set forth in the law. And Moo says, basically, to understand what Paul is writing here, we have to decide which perspective on the law he's referring to. 
In fact, if you read all the different commentators, they will give you all kinds of different options on what might be being referred to here and what we can understand Paul saying here. And we're basically told that they're all fairly good options, but then we're being asked by them to pick one, and each commentator picks one. Well, I'm going to give you the options, and we're going to look at them and see how we're to understand this text. So let's first look at the law as testifying, right? The law is testifying. Now, this doesn't mean the moral commands. This is not simply referring to the Old Testament laws that are given in the Ten Commandments. This is, in a sense, referring to the whole of the Old Testament, which testifies to God's person and God's will and God's way of salvation. Now, very often when the Jew was referring to the law or used and made a reference to the law, he was not speaking to just the Ten Commandments or the moral laws, but he was actually using that word to refer to all of the Old Testament scriptures and the whole of God's story and the way that God was communicating himself to the nation of Israel. And in that story or in that narrative, God was putting forward the information they needed to know to, among other things, see their own sinfulness, constant sinfulness, regular sinfulness, their ongoing rebellion against him. And then to see how God in the midst of that rebellion and that sinfulness didn't just simply bring consequences upon their sin, but how God was giving them an option to come away from their sinfulness and be made right. And the way in which they could have a right standing before God and meet with God and commune with God. And so God in the midst of their sinfulness, God continued to extend out to them covenants or promises that he would fulfill in order that they might find a way of salvation in him. And so... Basically, this is one of the ways in which the law was understood. And so the accusation, they're saying, you're nullifying the story. You're nullifying the testimony of all Scripture. The accusation would be that what you're teaching, that you're saved by faith, takes us away from understanding the will and the way of God, and it sets aside from us the way and the narrative and the trajectory that God has been teaching us and the things that God has been informing us all throughout the sacred story. Paul, you're actually denying these truths. It's as if you're saying, Paul, that all those things that God said in the past were maybe well and good, but now they're all being set aside and there's no real meaning or no real value to be plucked out of the Old Testament and out of the Scriptures. And now God is starting new and afresh and He's started a whole new story that's going in a whole new different direction. And this new story is setting aside everything that we've learned and the whole story we've been telling. The truth is that that accusation has some validity to it. It's not entirely an unfair accusation because there are many Christians, even today, who seem to manifest this very idea. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't think the Old Testament is relative to any truth or anything that they embrace. They have an understanding that the salvation they have received is something entirely different than the salvation and the way that God was opening up in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is passed on and it's just a book that is a relic of the past and now we have a new era in which God is speaking to us in this wonderful, powerful, loving way through the New Testament and that's our reference point and we have no reference point on those things. That's all passe. That's all. We're starting a whole new generation. We're a whole new people, a whole new story and it has nothing to do with that past and I've actually met Christians who have said that and professed that. They'll say that Paul was preaching an entirely different gospel. Paul was even preaching a different gospel than the gospel that Jesus preached. Because when Jesus came, he came to preach to the Jews. And he offered one kind of gospel was through moral conduct and behavior. And Paul came along and he had a totally different gospel. It was just a gospel of faith. It was a gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And a God who loved them and come to redeem them. I've met other individuals who wouldn't say that. But 
Actually, when you talk to them and discuss them, you'll discover that they never crack open the Old Testament. It's not even considered to be interesting or have any kind of vested interest in their lives. So it's not necessarily an unfair accusation, and it's kind of proved itself out a little bit. Here's the next thing. If we think that the law is a convicting work, we're now considering the purpose of the law as something that places a moral constraint upon our consciences. The law here can mean not only the overall story, which does, you know, your family stories place some kind of constraint upon your life, but it also can now include those commands, those direct commands that have been given to us in the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And these together function in a way to constrain the worse in us by awakening our conscience to what is good and right. They allow us as a result because our consciences are constrained and we don't become these independent, selfish people just doing what we want to do in our own way. They create a way in which we can have harmony with one another. And nothing is more dangerous than a person who has no conscience constraining him in society. That's a terrible situation. You want them to feel some conscience and you want them to feel a little bit of shame if they get too far out of line with the way that society is conducting themselves or else you have chaos. And as such, if you nullify these things and you set these things aside and you put aside these, these moral restraints and everyone does what is right in their own eyes, there will be an attitude that we can do whatever we want and we never have to say we're sorry. We never have to apologize. We never have to correct ourselves. We never have to get ourselves. We never have to figure out what the cadence is of people around us. We walk by our own stride, and as we walk by our stride, we stride out and we step on all kinds of other people. We just start treading down other people, doing what we think is good and what we think is right. Well, that's the accusation that's being made here. Paul, you're stripping away the very work of the law to stir up the conscience of men, to constrain them from their worst behavior, and as a result, you're going to create chaos And there's not going to be an ability for us to move together and live together and have harmony together. And it's the opposite of peace that you're encouraging. That's what's taking place here. You know, again, it's somewhat of a fair accusation at times because there are those in the church that actually teach that because Christ has died for our sins, past and present and future, we never again have to confess any sin and we never again have to ask for any forgiveness. We can dismiss the pricking of our conscience as pointing out personal guilt and accountability that no longer applies to us because Jesus has died for it all. And as a result, that person can conduct themselves in certain ways, act in certain ways in which you don't have to be constrained by the kinds of guilt that other people are wanting to put upon you and the shame that other people are putting upon you. I've had individuals make this argument to me in the past year and put this before me, that there is this grace that has freely been given to us and as a result it's not right for any of us to have any expectations even from God's word on how we ought to conduct ourselves. I had another individual tell me that listen because it's freely given to me I could spit upon Jesus when he was on the cross and he would forgive me before I drew the back of my hand to wipe the spittle off of my lips. That's the argument because it's all free and it's all grace and it's all about me. The conscience is untethered from a relationship with God and the way you engage in a relationship with God. Try living with your wife for any amount of time in a healthy relationship where you never say sorry, (laughs) where you never ask for forgiveness. It would not be a very good relationship and it wouldn't last very long. You start living in separate corners of the house. You start living in that way. But that's the accusation that's being made here. Then again, If we look at this law another way, if we don't look at it simply as testimony, 
And we don't simply look at it as this law that works conviction, like a moral law that sharpens our consciences and so restrains us to bring us in harmony with one another and with God. Then Paul's meaning here is the law as a commanding force. What Paul is referring to is the moral commands of the law and the moral work of the law that's done in calling us to keep it and obey it. He's referring to the Ten Commandments here. And he's saying that the accusation here is that we are somehow nullifying the importance of the Ten Commandments by saying that we're above the law. The law of righteous command no longer applies to us. God has changed and God's standard has changed and that the command still doesn't come to us where God says, be holy as I am holy. Or God says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you're to love the neighbor as yourself. What they're saying here is that the Christian in Paul's teaching is encouraging antinomianism. He is encouraging lawlessness. That somehow you're above the law because you're above any of the impact of the law and you're not bound by the moral demands of the law. You rise above it and you're without the law. And again, this can be considered a fair accusation. Actually, in Paul's day, the Gnostics were rising up and were giving this very same teaching. They were saying that the salvation that God provided was a salvation for our spirits, which were to last forever, but that was not a salvation for our bodies because our spirits and our bodies were two separate things. And once you received the salvation that God brought to your spirits, you were free to do with your body whatever you wanted. You could live in any way you wanted because you were free from the constraints of the law and... Well, to some extent, there are individuals that teach that still today. The Bible even warns us that we're not to use the liberty that we've been given as a cloak of unrighteousness, as an excuse that we wear to carry out unrighteous lives. But the reason that command is there is because we do it. Right? We even run different calculations. This calculation, oh, I know if I go and I do this and this and this, tonight when I go to bed, I'll ask God to forgive me and it'll all be good. So we get ahead of it and kind of nullify the law by that way. And we live as we want to live. We've got, in a sense, our ace in the hole. It somehow protects us so we can make any moral choice you want to live. We can actually live above it. And, well, that's the accusation that they're giving. There you go. Those are the accusations, either way that you look at it. The Christian doctrine of salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, according to these naysayers, denies the testimony of the law of all of Scripture. It wipes out the convicting and constraining nature of the law and makes Christians dangerous to others. And it turns you into lawless people who don't live and think that you're aloof or living above the commands of God. The question asked by the commentators again is which one of these references is being referred to? Is Paul combating an accusation that we're pulling ourselves out of the narrative of Scripture? Is Paul being accused that we're denying the constraining influence of the law? Or is Paul answering an accusation that we think we're above the moral law? And the answer to that question is, we don't know. (laughs) This passage isn't clear. It doesn't tell us. Paul is not clear on exactly what he is dressing with. But what you look at, if you understand this passage, and you look at the book of Romans, you'll see that it answers all three accusations. The book of Romans is written in such a way that the context of this book... If we choose all one or another, it doesn't put us in conflict with anything that Paul says here. There's no contradictions here. So you'll see that Paul answers in chapters 4 and chapters 9 through 11, the idea that we are removing ourselves from the testimony of Scripture. 
And you'll see that in chapters 2 and 3 and in chapters 5, Paul is addressing this idea that we are denying the convicting work of the scriptures. Just the opposite. The scriptures do their convicting work on our lives. They bring us under conviction of sin and guilt, and then they show us where that guilt is answered. Or you'll see in chapters 6 and 8 that Paul is going to write in such a way that he shows that this life of faith answers and affirms the commandments of the law as well, and its commanding influence upon our life. And so, actually, let's say this. Since we don't see there's a contradiction in any of these views, and we see that they all fully complement one another, and God is the author of Scripture, and He can make things as clear as He wants to make them, and He's made a statement that would include all three of these views, let's include all three of these views. Let's say that all three apply, and there's an answer for all three of those accusations in this wonderful truth that faith, our Christian faith, actually affirms or sets forward or it establishes the law. Here's the point. The Christian and New Testament teaching and belief that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law does not nullify the testimony of Old Testament Scripture or places outside of its narrative. It does not nullify the restraining work of the law bearing in upon our consciences and so undermine the constraints of conscience that allow us to live in harmony with others and with God. And again, the teaching that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone without works does not, in a sense, make us aloof from the very commands that God has given us. It doesn't make us and separate us from them in any way. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning very quickly. So first, let's look at this idea. If the law here means the Old Testament scriptures, let us say that our faith teaches us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that it anticipates. That Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of all that it anticipates. The, the scriptures and the testimony of all the Old Testament scripture congeals around the accounts of man's continual sin and the provision that God puts in place in order to address our sins in order that we might come to him and receive the benefits of all his promises. And that's basically the ongoing story. Along these lines... The law, the testimony, all of the Old Testament scripture is showing to Israel the way in which he is constantly calling them back to himself, reaffirming his promises that they can live under if they will receive his way of salvation. And so God opens up for them the sacrificial system in which they are to learn how they're to come near to him. And God gives promises of a king that would rule over them if they would submit to him. And God sends prophets to them to teach them and instruct them in his way and his law and his word and his truth. It was introducing people to this way of God in types and in object lessons. And God was throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures stoking in people and anticipation for the salvation that he was to bring upon the earth. And when Jesus came, he answered all the types. He lived out and gave bearing to all the object lessons of Scripture. And he expressed the fullness of the salvation that all of Scripture was pointing to. So that the law or the Scripture that God gave to Israel was completely and totally fulfilled in Christ. Our faith basically says everything in the Old Testament is answered and kept in Jesus. The law of testimony then means the whole of the Old Testament revelation. And the accusation is that saying that we're saved by faith destroys that 
story and someone makes void that book and takes us out of the narrative and the flow of that truth and divides us away from people by giving a made-up history, we would say just the opposite. That God has raised us up and God has taught us, God taught the nation of Israel to prize the temple and to prize the sacrificial system and to prize the life of holiness and purity that he was teaching and to prize the idea of living and not being defiled by sin. God has answered all of those things that he was directing and teaching them through Jesus Christ because he is the temple and he is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices and he is the high priest and he is the prophet who brings us the law and he is the law and he is the governing power of truth and he is the king and our faith sets down upon all that he is and answer to all that the law was teaching. We have been brought to the pinnacle of it. And we look back upon it and say, thank you, God, for all these things because they lead us to Christ. We're a part of that narrative. And Jesus was saying the same thing. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. We've come to him. We've come to him. We've followed the narrative. We've followed the story. We can see it in our own life. We can see it in our own narrative how God was, in a sense, through our own lives. We were a living illustration of the exceeding sinfulness that was repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And how God was continually coming to us and God was making promises known to us and revealing himself to us and we lived in rebellion to him. But he showed us a way and he gave us a lamb and he fulfilled the promises and a way for us to be forgiven and one to represent us before God. And he continued to renew his promises to us in his prophetic word and he still does today and we're a part of that story. It's a part of our life. It's a part of our narrative. Here's another one. Second If the law is being referred to here merely as the convicting agent that restrains sin, we're to see that we have followed that message of the law completely and it's brought before us our complete guilt and it's driven us away from every solution we've sought for that guilt except for God's answer. It's driven us to the place where God provides an answer for all of our guilt. It's driven us to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ, the very message and where our sin is answered reveals our sin and our need. The law is good because the law declared us guilty and the law brought us under judgment. And so the law awakened us to our true spiritual condition and our need for forgiveness and our need for escape and rescue from judgment. The law's function was to be a tutor to lead us to God's answer. It was to show us that we are failing in the grade of righteousness and to turn us away from self-righteous confidence and to seek a salvation that comes from God alone, by faith alone. It, it convicts us. It shows us our sin and our failings. Paul talks about this idea in Galatians chapter 3. Take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 and through 25. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. We were restrained by its influence upon our conscience, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
But after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under, in a sense, the constant, repetitive drumbeat that our sins are identified and our fallenness is simply identified in our failure to keep the law. In fact, actually what's happened is not that we don't recognize our sinfulness. Our gauge to recognize and see our sinfulness now is not in the law that condemned us and brought its judgment against us, but in the one who bore that condemnation for us. You want to understand your sinfulness, we no longer look to the law to say, oh, here's the law and I don't measure up. We look to the cross. And we see the one who died for us. And we see the measure of our sin in his marred visage, in his face. He died for me. He bore the consequence of my sin. You want me to tell you how sinful I am? Look to the cross. Look to the perfect sinless son who died. And he bears in upon my conscience and calls me to a life in conformity to God's will that never could be accomplished by simply weighing myself by my performance or my lack of performance before the moral law. I thank God for that conviction of the conscience. I thank God that He used that to stir up within my mind and understanding that I'm not righteous in myself. But in that sin and in that brokenness, He brought me to the cross where Christ suffered on my behalf for my sins. And in seeing Christ, I not only saw the source of my forgiveness from my sins, but I saw my sins. And I still do. I still do. You listen to the hymnody of the church and the Christian faith. And the Christian faith will not go to the law to account for our sinfulness. We'll go to the cross. It won't go to the law because we can see our sin in the law, but we see no answer for our sins in the law. We go to the cross and we see our sins as never before, but at the same time in the cross, we see an answer that the law could never give us. The law was meant to bring us to the point of stirring up our sense of sin in order to bring us to the cross where the sin was answered. But there in the cross, oh, there in the cross, I see my sin. I see my sin as I never saw it in the law. There are songs that we sing repeatedly. You'll start listening for them. And in those songs you see that there is an accounting before the cross of our sin, of our sinfulness, a conscience that's awakened and sharpened in the way that the law could never completely do it. Maybe the greatest hymn that expresses this was written by Horatio Bonner at the end of the 1800s. And the title of the hymn is, "'Twas I That Did It." Listen to these words. I see the crowd in Pilate's hall. I mark their wrathful mane, their shouts to crucify a pall with blasphemy between. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourges tear his back. I see the piercing crown. And of that crowd who smite and mock, I feel that I am one. Around yon cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groans. Yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. T'was I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less the blood avails to cleanse away my sin. And not the less the cross prevails to give me peace within. Conscience stricken at the cross of Jesus Christ. Your sins, your sins, my sins brought about all that suffering. My rebellion 
my restraint, my flight from his word, my resistance to his truth, my wanting to cast my own way, put him there. That's where I see my sin most fully. And that's where I see an answer for my sin as well. When I see my sin. That blood was shed for me to wash me and cleanse me and remove from my conscience the defilement of that very sin. Number three, when considering the law as command, as command now, we do not nullify its demands, but we see that those demands were fully met on our behalf in Jesus Christ. We know that God has not ceased to be holy and righteous. We know that he requires that those who come to him must come to him in perfect, complete righteousness. And Jesus Christ, through faith, gives us that righteousness. The very righteousness that inspired the moral law is his to give. Jesus has kept that law perfectly, fulfilled its demand to every jot and every tittle, a demand I can't keep and I can't measure up to and I fall from. But by faith, a demand that I may have and believing upon him receive, he clothes me, he clothes us with this perfect and complete Righteousness, And as such, our faith does not ignore the law, and it doesn't ignore the demands of the law, but he finds those demands fully met in Christ. Ours is not a life of try harder righteousness. Just try to be better tomorrow. It's not a give yourself, give all that you've got righteousness, or give what you can today righteousness and hope for the best. It's a righteousness that is complete and full and perfect, and it comes to us, by faith through Jesus Christ. And as a result, we are glad for the law. We rejoice in its demands because we see all the moral demands of the law have been fully met in Jesus Christ. We don't want to diminish one claim and one demand of the law. It it applies. It's there. It stands forever and ever. It stands as a call to our own lives. We can't meet it. But He has. And he can, and he did. And he gives the fullness of his righteousness to us, and we stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The demands that we've failed to meet, yes, but demands, holy demands, perfectly met for us in Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in the law. We ourselves live in obedience as we live in obedience to the law, even as we seek to follow it. As we live in obedience to the law, we're tracing out, even imperfectly, the outline of the righteousness that is ours through Jesus Christ alone. And we rejoice in that. Why would I want to live in defiance of a law that exalts the perfections of my Savior? Much more easy if I just keep trying to measure up that law again and again, and I find that I just fail, that I just give up. But if I have it, all of that righteousness... And every time that I submit and obey to the commands of God, I find my life moving in the contours, the perfect righteousness that he's given me and he covers me with. And what a rejoicing and what a life of praise that is. Imperfect, yes, but one day I'll be glorified. There'll be a perfect glorified praise at that time. I don't deny the law. I don't despise the law. I love it. It tells me of a Savior who kept it perfectly and has given me all his righteousness. I love the law. It's never before. Fourth, along these same lines, again, when approaching the law as command, Christ through faith now lives in me by the Holy Spirit. 
And this same spirit, as Paul was going to expand on in Romans 6, 7, and 8, this Holy Spirit now works within me, bringing to me the life of Christ in order that he might live out for me a growing obedience to God's commands and God's will. I don't live and follow these things to gain my salvation, but I live in these things to, by faith, let the Savior live his life and power out from me. I don't disparage the law. I delight in the law as a point of action at which I experience the life of Jesus within me. Power, life given to me to glorify Him, express Himself through Him. I exalt in the law because the law shows me where Jesus wants to be active in my life and where He wants to impart to me His ability and His power and His being. And why would I resist or despise that law then? I exalt in the moral commands of God and His direction for me. They are invitations to me where God is opening up to me the very places where Jesus wants to actually actualize himself or express himself in me. My father used to say something on a regular basis. He said, one person has ever lived the Christian life. It's Jesus Christ. And he wants to live that life through you. I want him to do that. I want him to live that life through me. And he will. And he does. So I, by faith, turn myself away from seeking to prove my righteousness in the law, but see the one who made me righteous through it perfectly. And as I see that law, I turn to him and say, now Jesus, do it in me. Express it in my life. What a joy. What a blessing. What a privilege. What we deny ourselves of Christ when we turn away from that law. Paul is saying, no, listen, we don't. We don't deny these things. We established them. You think about it. When God brought forward the commands of the law, he commanded the law, but before he commanded the law, the law was established upon him. The law was an expression of who he was in his very nature. It was just a command that was rising out of and set forward and upheld by his own nature. It suspended upon him. Now Paul says, we're in the same situation because Christ is living in us by faith and dwelling within us and the God whose character molded and gave shape to that law is living within us we, as we let him live himself to rest by faith, we establish the law in our communities as well. We show the one who is the genius behind all moral truth. Our lives are to be radiating his moral truth to others, so we glorify and honor him. And we want to do that. We long to do that. We don't do it in a prudish way. We don't do it in a way that we feel superior to others. It's Christ that we want to exalt. It's his life in us that we're exalting. Here's the application for us very quickly. First, prize the testimony that God has given us of his truth throughout Scripture. And through all of the story of the Bible, find Jesus Christ as the one who has answered this great story and fulfilled this great story of redemption. Love God's word. Jesus is through it, all through it, and his redemption is there. And find yourself in it and even know your own personal story because just as God was telling a narrative throughout all Scripture that's inspired, God was writing a story of his redemptive grace in your life and speaking to you and all of it's to lead you to Christ as the answer to everything that you need. Second, always evaluate your sin before the cross of Jesus. You know, if you think, well, I'm going to measure my sin by all the moral expectations of me, you'll let yourself go too easy. Go to the cross. And see what your sins really are. But then at the same time, you'll not live under this state of constant condemnation. If you go to the cross, you'll see your sin as you've never seen it. But you'll see an answer for your sin at the exact same time. So 
Christian's not somebody who goes around beating themselves up in a constant state of condemnation. That's what Satan does. God convicts us before the cross in order that I might open up to us by faith and renew us in the great hope and the great life that we have from Jesus in forgiving us. Third, rejoice in the dress of Christ's own righteousness. The perfect, sinless Savior who kept all the law. Don't diminish the law. Rejoice that you have the one who kept it perfectly, covering you with his perfect righteousness. Fourth, then by faith, receive Christ as the indwelling power of your life to live in holy obedience to God's commands and so glorify him and exalt him. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. All Paul said was, we don't nullify the law, we establish it. Just a short phrase. Like a declaration of truth that Paul throughout his whole letter is trying to prove. Can we prove it in our lives, O God? Can we see, can we say that you've carried out the story, brought us into the narrative that brought us to a Savior who answered all our needs? We saw our sin and we confessed it. And we found the righteousness that he provided when we looked upon him dying on the tree for us. Can we say, O God, that our conscience has been purified? We're no longer taking measures of ourselves against others or even against this law alone. But our conscience is purified because what weighs upon us is the work of Jesus done for our sins. It's sharpened. It's sharpened. Can we see and say in our lives, dear God, that as we've seen our sins, we've seen our Savior and believed on Him and trusted in Him alone and known that He has answered the law so completely that by faith we don't live trying to establish our righteousness, but we, we clothe ourselves in the righteousness that comes from Jesus only. And in that righteousness that is ours, we seek opportunities to experience you, know you, in obedience to you through your indwelling presence. We make you known to others. Oh God, magnify yourself. Oh Jesus, wonderful Savior, who clothes me in righteousness. Magnify yourself in me by living out your obedience in me. Teach me to love your law, but in no exercise of self-righteousness whatsoever. If it should creep up within me, bring me back to the cross to see my sin. Teach me to love your law because I love the communion of my Savior expressing his life and his power within me. And I want it. Thank you for the invitation into fellowship with you. Thank you that we may live our lives in the footsteps of our Savior. We'll praise you and we'll thank you and we'll rest in these things. We'll rest in the salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ. Amen.